0: cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence, the icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOmis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOmis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences, Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. This is a science podcast for February 9th, 2024. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up on the show this week, a different kind of magnetism. Freelance science writer Zach Savitsky is here to talk about new evidence for ultramagnetism, which can enable new types of electronics. Next on the show, producer Megan Cantwell talks with researcher Jeremy Chan about how air pollution can interfere with pollinator activities. Is the modern world too smelly for moths to do their work? This Week in Science, freelance science writer. Zach Savitsky wrote about a new type of magnetism, a third kind. And to be honest, I did not know there were two kinds to begin with. So I'm super excited to dig into this. Hi, Zach. Welcome back to the podcast.
1: Hey, Sarah. How are you?
0: Yeah, I'm good. I think you need a primer on what a magnet is and how they work. So there are two kinds of magnets we're going to start with. Uh, We're going to get to the third one. Sure. Let's start with the first two kinds. What is a ferromagnet?
1: Yeah, so when you think about a magnet, you're probably thinking about a ferromagnet. Everything from the sticky things on your fridge to the engines that make your car run to a lot of the memory that's inside of your computer, those are all based on what we call ferromagnets. And basically how these work is, inside of these materials, you have a bunch of atoms, and around those atoms, you have electrons. And those electrons each have this property called spin, which you can basically think of as like the internal magnetic field of the electron. And so each of these atoms has sort of its own magnetic compass. And we think of the spin as like an arrow which points in one direction. And so for ferromagnets, all of the atoms have spins that point in the same direction. And that helps things attach to other things that are pointing in different directions.
0: And that's why a piece of magnet has like a north and a south, right? Because they're all pointing in one direction. They're aligned and they, they kind of create a direction on a larger scale.
1: Correct. Yeah, you get a, a net magnetic field in the material as a bulk.
0: Okay, that's ferro. Okay, let's go to anti-ferro magnets.
1: Yeah, so in the 1930s, scientists realized that there is another way that the atoms inside of materials can align their spins. And it's basically a, a staggered arrangement. So each adjacent atom has an alternating spin. So one is up and one is down. And this is actually a much more stable and common arrangement. So there are somewhere around 100 different ferromagnetic materials, and there are thousands of anti-ferromagnetic materials. They aren't magnets in the sense of how we typically think about magnets.
0: They're not going to stick to your fridge, right?
1: Exactly. And that's kind of the point. They're anti those magnets. It's really difficult to polarize them to get all of the spins to line up in the same direction.
0: But they are magnets because they have spins in a pattern. That's why it's a magnet.
1: Correct. Yeah. It it has to do with this sort of symmetry.
0: And it has a a net zero magnetism.
1: Correct. Yeah. They they all sort of balance each other out.
0: Are the anti-ferro magnets used in electronics or other things that we might have encountered?
1: When scientists first came across anti-ferromagnetism, the physicist who won the Nobel Prize for this in 1970 described the phenomenon as exciting but useless. (laughs) I love it. Yeah. By looking at them, it seems like they wouldn't be very useful because they don't do the things that we like magnets for. But it turns out that they do have some useful or at least potentially useful properties. One of the coolest things that I think has been sort of inspired by anti-ferromagnetism is that this same physicist who discovered these, he played a big part in World War II when a lot of mines were set up to be triggered by ships that were passing through. And it would basically send the magnetic fields from the ship and then set off the mine. So they figured out how to rig up these electric cables around the ship to make the whole ship to act as like an antiferromagnet. So they demagnetized or what they call degaussed the ship and then that helped them pass through these magnetic mines. So useful after all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and since then people have been trying to use antiferromagnets for different things. Some scientists are really interested in turning antiferromagnets into electronic devices. That's more difficult to do than the way that they typically do it with ferromagnetic materials because of how sort of rigid these spins are inside of the material. But if they can figure out how to do it They would have their own sort of novel properties, mainly that they would be able to like write and process information much faster than ferromagnets can. And you can also stack them a lot closer together. There's been a big effort to try to develop these devices.
0: Okay, that's great. Now let's go to door number three. This is the third kind of magnet that we talked about up top. And this is kind of like a Goldilocks magnet.
1: Yeah, it's sort of a hybrid of the two.
0: Yeah. Okay, which is first quote unquote seen with a computer simulation.
1: Yeah, so basically one of the groups that was looking for these antiferromagnetic materials that they could potentially turn into electronic devices was looking for antiferromagnets that would be particularly suited for this kind of application. And one of the researchers came across a material called ruthenium dioxide which seemed to exhibit some strange features that were characteristic of both ferromagnets and antiferromagnets. The researcher came across these in some databases like published literature and also computer simulations. And so he ran a bunch of calculations and figured out that this material seemed to be in the gray zone between ferromagnetism and antiferromagnetism. And there were a few other materials that were spotted around the same time. This is like 2018, 2019. A few different groups from different countries around the world noticed a similar kind of thing that had popped up in various other materials.
0: So what does the simulation suggest? How would this be different or the same as the other two?
1: For ruthenium dioxide in particular, it has no net magnetization, like the antiferromagnets, where the spins are all anti-aligned. But it still exhibited some of the electron behavior that you see in ferromagnets. So for instance, there's this effect called the anomalous Hall effect, where when you apply a current to the material, you get a really strong voltage that comes in the perpendicular direction. And so the calculation simulation showed that you should get a really strong anomalous hall effect, like a ferromagnet, but have zero net magnetization, like an anti-ferromagnet. And the following year, I think in 2020, a team in China synthesized ruthenium dioxide and confirmed that it had both these things going on.
0: So we have the simulation and then we have the confirmation with this particular material. So what's the new news? Why are we talking about this today?
1: That experiment in 2020 was basically just showing like yes, indeed these materials are weird. And then the following year in 2021, that team from Germany came out with a paper saying we've come up with an idea for how you could get a material that behaves sort of in between a ferromagnet and an antiferromagnet. Basically their solution was instead of imagining that the spins of these atoms are attached to the atoms themselves. If you can rotate the spins independently from the atoms, then that allows you to do operations on this material that still preserve the same spin structure. So You can still have anti-aligned spins, but you can rotate, for example, the atoms themselves. If you have a ferromagnet and you rotate every other atom 90 degrees, and then you flip the spin of that atom 180 degrees, then you get something that if you look at the spins, it looks like an antiferromagnet. But if you look at the way that electrons would pass through the material, it looks more like a ferromagnet. Okay. That was really the key to figuring out how these things worked. And it showed them that there was actually a whole class of materials that could exhibit this magnetic behavior, which they called ultramagnetism.
0: It's not like a ferromagnet, it's not an antiferromagnetic, it's an ultramagnetic material. And what's next? And are they, are they going to look for more materials that exhibit these properties?
1: Their models show them that there should be between 200 and 300 materials that exhibit ultramagnetism. And now the next step is experimentalists are starting to actually look for this phenomenon happening in nature. So that's the, the peg for this story here is that there have been a flurry of recent papers in the past few weeks and coming out in the next few weeks that are attempting to experimentally verify alter magnetism in real materials, ruthenium dioxide for one, but also some other materials as well. These experiments are actually synthesizing these materials and doing special tests on them to see if the electrons are behaving in the way that their models and theory are predicting.
0: We have this in computer simulation. We now have math that describes it really well. Do we actually need to go out and find like experimental evidence for this existing?
1: That's a good question. And it really depends on who you ask. I spoke with some theorists who said there really isn't a huge need that these kind of experimental efforts to verify ultramagnetism in real materials are sort of besides the point. Like the math is so solid that there's no way that this phenomenon wouldn't exist out in the real world. But the experimentalists obviously have a somewhat different view on this in that actually verifying these properties in real materials can point us in new directions that we never would have thought of just by classifying them mathematically.
0: Is this surprising that we haven't seen this before or hasn't been understood before?
1: Most people I spoke with told me that there's no reason why ultramagnetism couldn't or shouldn't have been in textbooks 60 years ago. (laughs) Yeah, which I think is exciting and strange. And some condensed matter theorists have told me We shouldn't go pointing fingers saying, how could you not find this before? Because, you know, obviously this was there all along. It's not like this phenomenon just appeared out of nowhere, but they really had to know what they were looking for. And I think the key here was that this team was looking for anti-ferromagnetic electronic applications that pointed them toward this class of materials that happened to be exhibiting this weird behavior.
0: Super interesting. Are they going to then look, at this as a potential fodder for electronics? Does it have potential, you know, to kind of solve some of the problems that ferromagnets or anti-ferromagnets have?
1: It's still early days for applications, for sure. From a theory standpoint, it seems like theorists are pretty confident that ultramagnetism exists. The math here is based on symmetries, which are these operations that you can do without changing the actual structure. And that is, from what I'm told, rock solid. The experiments seem pretty convincing to the theorists as well, although some won't quite call it said and done until they reach a few more benchmarks. But things look promising on the experimental front. But in terms of turning this into a new breed of electronic devices, there are a few more hurdles that they'll have to jump over before we get there.
0: So are we going to be hearing about a fourth type of magnetism in the next decade, you think?
1: So, there are actually many more types of magnetism beyond. What? Yeah. These are all what they call collinear magnetism types. If you think about the spins as being able to point in any direction, these are the three classes of materials that they know of where spins can point either up or down. But there are all sorts of exotic types of magnetism where spins can point in circular directions or in like a third dimension as well. So, these are things like skirmions and merons. So there's a whole zoo of magnetic phenomena out there.
0: Very cool. All right, Zach, this has been super interesting. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Zach Savitsky is a freelance science writer. You can find a link to the story we discussed at science.org podcast. Stay tuned for a chat with Megan Cantwell and Jeremy Chan on olfactory pollution in the Anthropocene. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Change your job and you might just change the world. For anyone who's looking to get ahead in or just plain get into science, there's no better, more trusted resource than Science Careers. And it's free. On our site, you can search career opportunities across all disciplines and levels, research potential employers, sign up to get job alerts via email, Upload your resume or CV to the searchable database, or read career advice articles. There's no shortage of global problems today that science can't solve. Be part of the solution. Visit sciencecareers.org today. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org Eppendorf to apply today.
2: Human pollution can significantly impact how other animals sense the world around them. Ship noise can make it hard for dolphins to hear each other's calls, whereas light pollution can make migratory birds really confused as they're navigating the skies. One sense that can also be altered that we know a lot less about is scent. I'm here with Jeremy Chan, who looked into how pollutants can mask or change the scent of flowers and why that might spell trouble for pollinators. Thank you so much for joining me, Jeremy.
3: Thank you, Megan.
2: The main pollutants that you talk about in your paper that can potentially impact these sort of scents are nitrates, ozone, hydroxyl radicals. And some of these are naturally occurring in the environment, but other times they are caused by humans. Could you talk a little bit about the sources for these pollutants?
3: We might be familiar with these chemicals, such as the smell of cut grass or the smell of pine forests or the smell of vehicle exhaust or even the smell of drying paint. During the daytime and the presence of sunlight and oxygen these volatile chemicals in the atmosphere get oxidized into other chemicals but in the process they also form ozone. This ground level ozone in the daytime is highly reactive. It can result in eye and respiratory irritation in humans and in other animals and plants and it can also degrade chemicals in the atmosphere or on any surface. I chose to focus on nitrate radicals in addition to ozone pollution, because these radicals are actually a more reactive component of the atmosphere than ozone. At night, we can have the reaction of ozone with nitrogen oxides in the atmosphere. Nitrogen oxides are most often released from vehicle and industrial exhaust, but there are some natural sources such as soils or or lightning strikes, for example. This paper focuses on studying the degradation of floral scent by nitrate radicals.
2: In this study, you're focusing on a specific flower as your model to go through these different experiments. How did you pick this specific flower? And is there any way you could describe what the scent might smell like?
3: I went about choosing this flower because it smells great. (laughs) (laughs)
2: That's good. You're going to be around it a lot.
3: (laughs) that's, That's one way of choosing a system, but there are limits to... The technologies that we have that can detect these scents. So I had to pick a more strongly scented flower. Otherwise, our instruments would have difficulty picking up and studying the reactions of these scents. It's a species of evening primrose. It's Unathera pallidor, and it grows in the semi-arid landscapes of the Great Basin Desert, basically down the west coast of the United States between the Cascade and Rocky Mountains it blooms at night. It has a nice big white flowers and they smell great. Ha! Huh, how do they smell like? Is it sweet? Sweet and funky. These white flowers that bloom at night smell really strongly because at night pollinators can't really see them from far away at all. There's no light. Another reason why I studied a, a night system because the visual cues tend to be less important at night unless the pollinators are really close to the flower. Another thing that a lot of these night blooming flowers have in common is that they con- often contain nitrogenous compounds. These are what give it the funk. <laughs> it smells kind of like feet. And another component of the floral scent smells a lot like melons. Then there's the monoterpene components smell kind of fruity. And there are some aromatic components as well like methyl and that smells sweet. So you have a sweet, fruity funky, melony odor. It's really quite an experience to be in a field of these flowers at night.
2: It's also so interesting that you can so quickly ascribe what the compound is related to what that part of the scent is. Could you kind of walk through that process of how you're figuring out what aspects of the scent are the pollinators attracted to?
3: Yes. So the first part of that process is collecting the scent. We tie a bag around the flower and we insert this filter attached to a pump and we sample the scented air with the flower in the bag through this filter that captures all of those scent compounds. Then we analyze these scent samples using gas chromatograph mass spectrometry. So the, the chromatograph separates the different chemical components of the scent and then this passes to a mass spectrometer which then identifies the individual chemicals that are present in the floral scent. Next, there's the task to determine what the pollinators are actually detecting or responding to. So to do that, we use a gas chromatograph electroantennogram. It's the same gas chromatograph system that separates the, the scent sample into the different chemical components. And then we pass this to an actual insect antenna that has electrodes connected across the antenna. The insect antenna are the noses of the insects. They are what the insect uses to smell. It transforms these scent stimuli into nerve impulses, and these are electrical signals that we can actually measure with a sensitive amplifier.
2: Were there very specific compounds that they reacted very strongly to versus others in the scent?
3: Yeah, I think there were a total of twelve compounds that the insects responded more strongly to out of the several dozen different compounds that were present in the scent. The aldoxime, one of the nitrogenous components of the scent, lots of. Nighttime pollinators are attracted to the nitrogenous component of the floral scent. They also responded strongly to some of the monoterpenes, that kind of fruity or citrusy odors. And the antennas responded strongly to methyl salicylate, the key component of oil of wintergreen.
2: After you figured out these compounds they're reacting to, then you were seeing how they were impacted by the nitrates or the ozone. Did you find that some changed significantly or degraded more than
3: others? We found that the, the monoterpene components of the scent were degraded more severely than other components. So the alboxyme was not impacted at all by degradation because the structure of that chemical was more resistant to attack by ozone and radicals.
2: Were these monoterpenes equally impacted by ozone and nitrates or is it mainly the nitrates that was kind of causing a significant change?
3: They were more severely impacted by the nitrate radical oxidation, by ozone oxidation Under the conditions that we tested, which were equivalent to what you would see in a highly polluted city, these monoterpenes were degraded by about 30% in ozone and by about 80% in the nitrate radicals. But it's important to recognize that the degradation of these chemicals are dependent on concentration and also distance or reaction time. In a less polluted environment like what. You would see in most of rural North America, let's say, there's still some ozone there. We would actually see similar impacts if you, let's say, doubled or tripled the reaction time. The impacts that you would see 100 meters away in downtown Los Angeles might be the same kind of impacts that you'd see in a pristine environment, maybe 400 meters.
2: The natural environment that you did for the next part of your study to see whether the pollinators were actually coming to the plants is that an area that isn't really impacted by pollution? Is it pretty far from any like city centers?
3: Yes. There was very low nitrogen oxide pollution at that site. It was less than a part per billion. Although if you have ever been to sagebrush territory, you know there's that smell. You instantly recognize it. It's one of those smells that really stays in your memory. But all of those are natural volatile chemicals that are released into the atmosphere at high concentrations. So there's actually quite a high ozone concentration in those pristine environments.
2: Did you test first in the lab and then you moved to kind of a field experiment? Yes. In the lab, what did this reveal about whether pollinators were still attracted to it when you added the
3: nitrates? It actually depended on the pollinator. So we tested two different hawk moth pollinators, one called Haile's lineata or the white line sphinx moth. It's just it's really colorful, cute, stripy hawk moth, and this other tobacco hornworm moth, which is a larger, primarily night and evening flying hawk moth. The electroentelegrams that we performed on these species revealed that two of them actually had differing sensitivities to the floral scent. The tobacco horn moth was significantly more sensitive to the scent than the white-lined sphinx or hylies. And this was also reflected in what we found in the wind tunnel studies. So when we exposed the scent to degradation by nitrate radicals, it completely removed attraction from highly. It's like none of them were attracted to the scent source at all.
2: When you tested whether or not moths in their natural environment would still be attracted to this degraded scent, you actually made these fake flowers and put them amidst the real flowers. Can we clearly see that these flowers are fake flowers?
3: Maybe at a distance, if you didn't see the rest of the setup, they're just white circles, which is why it probably worked because, yeah, nobody can see that well at night. I did have to spend like three years in the field tinkering with the setup until they would actually visit. Only on the third year did I manage to get them to visit. I had to try various things. First, I tried putting them in the actual primrose plants. Because other research has shown that the scent of the vegetation of the plant is synergistic with the scent of the flower and helps the pollinators to recognize it. That actually still did not work. So what finally got it to work was that I had to humidify the filtered paper cones because flowers are release humidity and that's actually one of the cues that pollinators use to determine whether or not there's nectar in a flower and whether or not it's worth visiting after embedding these fake flowers in the real plant and humidifying the cones and to get the scent stimulus, I was finally able to get the hog moths to visit my fake flowers.
2: Now that this system finally worked, what did you find about the difference between the pollinators? Were they more attracted to the one with the normal scent? Did it change when they were approached with a degraded scent?
3: The attraction definitely decreased with the degraded scent. And in fact, it decreased to levels that were not different to a paper cone, which I was just pushing clean air through. Also, what I found was that my synthetic floral scent attracted the same number of pollinators as the real flower scent, which was really satisfying. It's like, yes.
2: This plant in particular is releasing more of its scent at night, but I noticed in the study, you also did record it during the day as well. Yes. Would a plant be able to adapt and maybe know to emit more of its scent during the day if the ozone's not degrading it as much?
3: You would think that's one thing that has perplexed me for a long time in this project. I mean, it's not just the plants. You would think that the pollinators who are so reliant on their sense of smell to locate okay, these flowers would just switch to something else I try mean, a different if, time. If yeah, the that's monoterpenes <laughs> are being degraded by all of these man-made pollutants, then why not change to rely on the aromatic compounds or the signs, which are not as severely degraded? It's been what, 150 years since the industrial revolution? At the time scale of insect evolution where there are potentially many generations per year. That's more than enough time for the insects to have adapted their olfactory systems or evolved to rely on signals that are less easily disrupted. So that that is a mystery to me.
2: You also did an analysis in your study as well about exactly what hot spots there kind of are for these nitrate or ozone pollutions. What did that reveal about? What areas maybe need to be a little concerned about whether these pollinators are getting to these flowers?
3: What my maps show is that across basically the entire Europe and huge areas of East Asia and the Middle East and large areas in North America, there are severe impacts on the recognition distances of scent caused by their degradation in the atmosphere from ozone and nitrate radicals. It's an 80 to 90% degradation and recognition distance compared to pre-industrial times. And that surprised me because... We know that there's been a huge global effort to to combat air pollution. Even with all of the progress that we've made in improving the air quality, we still have these significant impacts to center recognition distances.
2: What exactly are kind of the sources then that are likely contributing it to being more widespread than you anticipated?
3: It's widespread because of the atmospheric circulation mechanisms of the Earth. There are these winds that blow pollutants and air around the northern and southern hemispheres. And so that distributes the scent and pollutants and whatever downwind from cities or forests quite effectively. But I guess the effects are so widespread. Maybe because they are so severe, I wasn't expecting them to be so severe. If the impacts were lower as in the effects of the emitted concentrations weren't as high, then the visible impacts of the map would be smaller. Basically, smaller areas around the cities if they weren't as severe.
2: Well, this seems like two bits of bad news in terms of there being more of this pollutant, and also that pollinators aren't exactly. But the good thing is savvy, that. But oh yeah, if you don't yeah, think it's, I guess what is a kind of upside of this, or what can we do to kind of make it better?
3: It's definitely a huge priority of many governments worldwide. I mean, it has been for decades and continues to be. So we are continually seeing improvements in air quality. And the levels of nitrogen oxides in the atmosphere have fallen drastically since even like 20 years ago. In fact, my advisor, Joe Thornton, he studied nitric pollution in the atmosphere and he was questioning whether or not there was the right career move given that nitrogen oxides in the atmosphere are rapidly disappearing as a result of emissions control yeah. efforts worldwide.
2: There is some improvement, but there's still a long way to go to actually bring back the distance that these scents would be able to travel to these pollinators.
3: Yes. And yeah, who knows what these impacts are in other systems. I mean, plants also use volatile chemicals to communicate with each other and with other insects, with predators. And animals use their sense of smell to locate resources, to locate food. Animals in the wild use their sense of smell to locate mates. All of these are potentially subject to the same degradation mechanics and potentially the same impacts as what the pollinators in my study have experienced.
2: Thank you so much again for taking the time to speak with me.
3: Well thank you Megan for having me.
2: Jeremy Chan is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Naples Federico II. You can find a link to his research paper at science.org slash podcasts. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you
0: have any comments or suggestions, Write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. To find us on the podcasting apps, search for Science Magazine. Or you can listen on our website, science.org slash podcast. This show was edited by me, Sarah Crespi, Megan Cantwell, and Kevin McLean, with production help from Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.